0: Human factors in healthcare, we've basically come to the tree-hugging bit of the course, I'm afraid. So I will try and make this as relevant to all of you and and persuade you that in your working environments it may be important or or certainly something to help to start setting up. I know there's a lot of uh, intensivist and acute care doctors here and ED doctors, and a lot of you may have seen some of these papers or know about some of this, so I apologise for that in advance, but I've tried to make it relevant for all of you here. So, this was a comment that Ian and I heard at a conference two years ago. Rona Flynn's an industrial psychologist. She's one of the leading experts in human factors investigation. She investigated the Piper Alpha disaster back in 1988. And the reason that human factors in healthcare is relevant is because this is what people were saying about us ten years ago. And an expert saying this about us is slightly worrying. And I don't know about yourselves, but in terms of sort of safety checklists how standard operating procedures, how we do things, we don't really come up to scratch. Everybody, we haven't really come up to scratch, but we're getting there. Now, the sort of driving force behind human factors integration in healthcare came from this um, paper, which was late, is published now as a book uh, by Lucianne Leap, which essentially was investigating healthcare in the States, and they were looking at the increase in litigation And what they found was actually that thousands of people were being injured, harmed, or even resulting in death um, back in 1999. And to her is human is about the fact that at the sharp end, the interface between the clinician and the patient or the healthcare professional and the patient, you are likely to make mistakes and you will make mistakes in your career. And they came up with a a number of um, recommendations and one of those was human factors integration um, in healthcare, the training. We have our own investigations. Chris Charles Vincent um, is a psychologist who was at UCL when he did this study where they looked at patients at UCL and the Middlesex, both surgical and medical patients and basically came up with this alarming statistic that 10% of patients experienced an adverse event when they were admitted to hospital and a third of those were multiple and they were more likely to happen in the elderly. I suppose that's not surprising due to, um, with recent literature and reports that we've had recently. Um, so we have our own issue. Have we improved in the last sort of 12 years? Well, this is a chart from Charles Vincent's book um, essentially saying that it's the same all over Europe and it's pretty similar in Australasia, and we haven't really improved. If you look at statistics from the last two years we still have patients that experience harm at the same sort of rate of about 10%. Um, And in Sweden last year, it was 12.5%. So we've got a long way to go in terms of how we um, improve our patient safety records and how we prevent patients coming to harm. So some of you may have read Atul Gawande's book, Um, about the 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 WHO checklist. Now we all have criticisms of the checklist. I work in theatres, I know what everybody says about it. However, we do work in a system where we can only, in a crisis, hold on to about seven pieces of information. And the purpose of a checklist is so that you don't have to think about the straightforward stuff, you can think about the diagnosis and what is actually going wrong at that time. But what he also states in his book is that we have so many different diseases, syndromes and types of injuries that we have to recognise as healthcare professionals and procedures that we have to do and risks and considerations that we have to take into account that we are bound to make mistakes. We work in an environment where we have complex tasks to do, multiple interfaces, we have time pressure, we have pressure of getting the work done in the allotted time so that your staff don't leave halfway through. And you need to be accurate because it's healthcare. This is about a patient. This is not about stacking shells in a supermarket necessarily. So Catchpole is another clinical psychologist. And a lot of research has been done in the last 10 years in healthcare has involved clinical psychologists and industrial psychologists because that was where we were lacking in terms of our research and the evidence behind it. And the psychologists were the ones who were involved in industry and were actually setting up these safety protocols and looking at why people make mistakes. So this work is from Ken Catchpole. He now works in the States. He was from Oxford, a clinical psychologist. And this is the number of interactions and in areas where error can occur on a handover to a consultant anesthetist from an ICU nurse. And the surgeon is the intensivist, really, in, in the UK. And the... the The errors occur in the communication. 85% of them occur in the communication. Interfaces between the kit that we use, like having pumps you've never seen before and just working it out as to how they work. Um, Handover from the nursing staff and um, distractions of the alarms of the ventilator, etc., going off whilst you're trying to get a handover. So it's another obvious reason why we make mistakes, or patients are subjected to error or harm. This is um, an interesting study that Pronovost, who's an intensivist from the States, he works at the John Hopkins Medical Center, has done a lot of work using checklists in the ICU to reduce morbidity and mortality, and he looked at introducing a um, goal chart uh, in the ICU. So on this goal chart, it would say, okay, patient one in bed one, the goals for the day are." to speak to the micro, consultant microbiologist, make sure that they're on the right antibiotics mm-hmm. and get, get a, do another septic screen or so-and-so. So that was an example of it. And essentially what they found was before and after implementing a goal chart, less than 10% of residents and nurses looking after that patient actually knew what the goal for the day was in that ICU setting. An ICU we think of, and I've worked in ICU quite a lot, as an area where things are quite controlled. You've got one patient that you're looking at mm. whilst you go around and do your round. There's lots of multiple things going on. But it's, it's just like ED and acute the wards and um, theatres. There's a lot of distractions all the time. So this is really another example of checklists. I thought this was a really interesting study. Uh, we quite often get doctors phoning us up um, in the hospital and they're trying to get you to do something for them, or they want a referral, they want a review, and you're not quite sure why they're asking you, or they're not quite sure what they want from you. And this is an example of where you could use a a goal chart when you're doing your rounds, for example. After they'd instituted this goal chart, 95% of the ICU nurses and 95% of the residents understood what the goals of the day were for that patient. So human factors... Um, basically we're all going to make mistakes so we have to have an understanding of what our limitations are and a lot of you may see, have seen this slide but essentially we all do long hours not as long potentially as they used to be unless you're a consultant <laughs> you're all subject to stress and people are at you all the time I've done quite a lot a lot of lists in interventional radiology and I'm quite surprised how when the interventional radiologist is doing a procedure. How many distractions they are, there are? And some research looking at surgeons and what they um, do up in Scotland demonstrated that the, some medical students went into theatres and they looked at how many distractions there were. They noticed that on average the theatre doors opened 19 times an hour and the telephone rang, etc. etc. So we're all Subject to stress and external dis- distractions, and then there are own issues, like your kids are sick and your childcare's not working out, and your mum 's dying or what have you. Those things are all imp- imp- are important at the sharp end yourself delivering the care and recognizing what your own limitations are. Your performance is affected when we 're very bored in theater i 'm joking, but when you 're very bored in theater and you 're nodding off and you 've been doing a neurocraniotomy for hours and hours, that is the time when you 're going to make a mistake that is the time when potentially um, the ET tube becomes dislodged or the patient stops ventilating properly or the muscle relaxant wears off and they stop coughing in pins. But don't worry, that hasn't happened to me. But this is, you know, these are examples of, of where things go wrong. So Hogan's dark side behaviours, these um, were essentially all of us, apart from the fact that we're limited by personal <coughs> issues and how tired we are, we're also limited by our personalities. Some of us are good at some things, some of us are less good at others. But essentially, Hogan's Dark Side Behaviours was um, some research done, some psychomet- psychometric testing that was done on 180,000 executives and senior managers in the world by two, um, again, psychologists from Texas. And they found that most mm-hmm. of us have, in our personality, a number of positive and negative personality traits so, for example, if I'm enthusiastic in a stressful situation, that personality trait would, is likely to mean that I might become volatile. Okay? You can't change your personality, but you can change your behaviour. So a lot of human factors training is about understanding what your own limitations are, what kind of person you are, and trying to accommodate for that when you're in a, cris- a crisis or a difficult situation. I know that I get a bit tongue-tied in a critical situation in theatre. So I've tried to use protocols and strategies to talk more slowly (laughs) in those situations. But just because of simulation training and watching myself on a video, that's helped, I think, certainly in terms of my performance. So human error. Um, Prof Reason was from Manchester, another psychologist being taken over by psychologists. The the simple way to understand human factors is there's the person level, which is you, your interaction with kit, your interaction with checklist, your interaction with other people, and then there is the system. And this is something that has lagged behind a little bit in healthcare. There's been quite a lot of investment in sim training and human factors and non-technical skills, but not so much in actually what's the safest route to get the patient from A to B. And... You know how are how are our hospitals actually set up to provide a safe path for the patients? Not particularly well at times, and I'm sure as clinicians you've experienced lots of SIP systems that you think this is crazy. This is putting the patient at risk. We're actually at the time now where we need to flag up a lot of those systems and change the way that healthcare is set up for patients. So I'm I'm just going to talk about two cases, and I'm sorry if these if anyone was involved with these. Um, but they're just reminders of how systems can fail healthcare professionals. The doctor involved in this case, and a lot of you, if you work in ED, will know about this case. I was working in, not at Newham, but in at the London at the time, and the ED consultant was blamed for this, and essentially they had an, what we would call now, unsafe anaesthetic machine in the ED department, and nitrous oxide was administered to the patient. There was a little three-year-old girl, and she died. Now, after that, there was a um, study looking at all anaesthetic machines across Europe, and over a third of them were unsafe for purpose. So that's a system's failure, isn't it? And what's happened since then is anaesthetic machines have been developed, so they have a chain built-in mechanism, so you can't give less than 21%. But at the time, you could turn up CO2. You could give someone CO2, and we used to, to get people to breathe after surgery. Anyway, but with oxygen. Um, but, yeah, so that was a systems failure, and, and the, the doctor was blamed for that. This case, there have been multiple cases of vincristine injection intrathecally, and after poor Wayne Jowett died, there was another case at Great Ormond Street about two months later. Um, and essentially, if you look at the record of what actually happened, it was a locum medical registrar, uh, the patient had come in late, The drugs came up from pharmacy together, and they didn't normally. They came up separately. And the locum didn't realise... They couldn't read because they were stressed in that environment and they were trying to get on with the the injection quickly. Vincristine. They thought they read methotrexate because that's what they did at their previous hospital. However, the system had an error in it because they had mechanisms in place for not sending two drugs up to the patient for their intrathecal injections. So the medical registrar in that case was um, charged with manslaughter. So the way that we investigate uh, adverse events is also part of the whole human factor safety culture. If we're going to point the finger <coughs> at the person at the sharp end, the person delivering the treatment, that is wrong. There are so many learning... Uh, there There so, is so much to learn from these adverse events to prevent it happening to future patients. This isn't about cover-up, it's about trying to make sure it doesn't happen again. At times we are culpable, but most of us don't come into work trying to kill people. That's not why we signed up to be medics or healthcare professionals. The London Protocol, which has been developed by Imperial College, and I put my hand up and say, I'm not sure if we use it here, but I heard about this at the conference last week in Bristol, is a much more... Um, sort of industrial stepwise approach at how you investigate these adverse events and look more consistently at the system than just the person (coughs) to impose blame. So if you have anything to do with human factors training, you will know that these are the sort of leading organisation that use human (coughs) factors um, training. And it (coughs) is about developing a pervasive safety culture. That is the bottom line. There's lots and lots of different um, definitions of human factors. And I, to make it simple, just think about the person and think about the system. And that's my definition, how you interact in the hospital. But Rona Flynn here, who was the person who didn't want to get on the NHS airline, has come up with this sort of definition here, which is quite neat. So it's your, it's your safety culture in the hospital, the management, the leadership your own working environment, the ergonomics, the human factors ergonomics, so how your how your ICUs are set up. Do you remember the old ICU here? That was quite interesting to work in, wasn't it? Lucky people didn't break their legs falling over all the pumps and everything, yeah. wasn't it? So it's your working environment, your um, teamwork and uh, your team training, which is very important, and your own skills as an individual worker. So our experience from aviation is that of accidents are human factors related. So it's likely, and there is evidence to support, that 75% of errors in healthcare, because we are a high-risk organisation, just like the oil industry, just like NASA, just like nuclear power, are human factors related. But they accept it as normal, they have official inquiries that, yeah, essentially may blame the pilot at the end of the day, but the aim is not to blame the pilot from the start. They have a lot of training, and the meeting that we had in Bristol last week was about how we need to actually take this safety, really important, and start making it mandatory that people have safety training and time for simulation training and non-technical skills training. Um, But we're not quite there yet. So person-level factors are these just things, just to reiterate. So situation awareness, I'll talk about that in a second, your decision making because people freeze in a crisis and don't know how, can't actually make a decision their communication fails and their teamwork fails um, good leadership managing and then your personal issues such as managing stress and coping with fatigue and your system level human factors which we lag behind on a bit is our investigation pro- processes um, new procedures. In Scotland, if they bring in new kit, they send it through a simulated environment before they put it on the wards. I'm not sure they do that for everything, but that was certainly presented last week, and that's from the, the patient safety lead for Scotland. Um, how the equipment is designed. Our car dashboards are designed very easily, aren't they? very well, aren't they? So they're intuitive. And a lot of stuff that we use, even our anaesthetic monitors in theatre, we can't find what you want half the time. Um, so there's been no investment in human factors ergonomics. There is in everything else, construction, the, you know, building high-rise flowers at, at towers, but there isn't in healthcare as much. Um, and error and risk identification, recognizing what the common errors are in your working environment, that is key. So non-technical skills. Um, this was a research project that was published quite a long time ago now, well, 10 years ago, but the work was done in the late 1990s, and they looked at, they used the prototype from Notex, which is what pilots good behaviours, so how you're expected to behave as a pilot. And they looked at anaesthetists, Nikki Moran and Rona Flynn again, and looked at 50 hours' worth of videos and lots of different um, people anaesthetists in theatres and their interactions, and essentially they came up with a a taxonomy of examples of good behaviours and not such good behaviours. So things that were safe, safe behaviours, and things that were not safe. And these team working and task management um, groups here are your uh, social skills that you require, and your situation awareness and your decision-making are your more cognitive skills. So non-technical skills, just to not... you know, just to let you know, there are now taxonomies for ED and acute medicine and ophthalmics. They've only just been um, written, and I couldn't actually find them. But they are there. They have done them for medicine. There are in place now anaesthetic non-technical skills, non-technical skills for surgeons, non-technical skills for scrub practitioners that have been um, researched in the same way, Okay. So teaching these, as we do in anaesthetics, can be, you know, it helps essentially in terms of individual performance. And these are the skills categories. So it's your, for example, if you look at task management, planning and preparing, anticipating what could go wrong, prioritising and providing and maintaining standards, identifying and utilising resources. And one of the interesting things for team working, we've done some videos in neurotheatre, is how you don't utilise your resources that well. How a lot of us in a crisis just go into ourselves and forget that we've got an entire team out there that we can delegate to. Situation awareness, everybody... Um, in fact, it's not situation-null. That's an error. It's situation <coughs> awareness. There's no such thing as situational awareness. Situation awareness is your sort of... The, if you are a transmitter or radio transmitter and receiver... It's what you perceive is going on in the environment, so what you understand is going on on the ward with that patient at the time, your comprehension of that, so, um, so what, what's that mean to me, and your projection phase, so it's your anticipating what is going to happen and your management of that. So it's quite complex. It's not just recognising that someone's moving from one lane to the other on, on the motorway and that could be a... Um, a risky situation for you. It's actually how you deal with that. Um, and this is work from Ensley just really outlining how complicated situation <coughs> awareness is. It's affected by your long-term <coughs> memory scores, your previous experience, what you automatically do in a crisis, what has worked for you previously. So it is more complicated it is quite a complicated skill to learn. Does simulation training work? I just thought I'd talk about <coughs> simulation training and checklists and then give you a couple of human factors things to take away with you. Well, there's been uh, quite a lot of research in the last 15 years because there are a lot of, critis, crit, um, a lot of people who criticise simulation saying, well, we don't have any evidence that any of it works. Why are you investing so much money into it if it doesn't work or we don't have any you know, proof? I'm just going to show you a few papers. So this was just training uh, residents in Toronto in non-technical skills, and just like ants, their performance increased in critical situations. This is a paper that was published in JAMA uh, sorry, in 2010, and it was looking at quite a complex medical team training program at um, over 100 hospitals and they were trained in simulation and non-technical skills, debriefing, briefing, and checklists, and they found that that was associated with a reduction in surgical mortality, and that was over a six-month to a year period. And then Ian knows quite a lot about this because he set up the obstetric simulation, but um, essentially another aim of running simulations in your working environment is you can detect breaches or errors in the system So those are latent errors, so errors that are there that you didn't realise. For example, we found in theatres that we had paediatric bags, ambu bags, in some of the theatres, rather than adult um, ambu bags, because we used to do peds upstairs, and they hadn't been replaced, and Ian discovered that. Um, And that's an example of a latent error, because you don't see it on a day-to-day basis, Um, and then... Active errors are errors at the sharp end, again, so errors with you and equipment and the patient. Um, and this study basically demonstrated that uh, you, you, can, you can discover an enormous number of latent and active errors in your systems, and uh, it results in overall reduced instance of error to the patient. Checklists. We love a checklist. So this is, Atal Gawande published this in January in the New England Journal of Medicine. And um, he's a surgeon and obviously published the checklist paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. (coughs) But this was looking at simulated crisis, and it's something that we teach in the Neuro um, Head Start course that I run to use protocols, because when you do get into a sticky situation on the ward or in ED, it is helpful if somebody is reading from a checklist to make sure that you've um, included everything in your management of the patient and it's something that we've changed in neuro because we have quite a few you know we have a few arrests and the patients are sick so it's 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 quite a critical working environment but this publication basically showed that if you don't have a checklist you'll forget 20 25 percent of the correct management of that patient in an acute um in in something such as Advanced life support or the manage- <clears throat> management of a major hemorrhage, um, and if you use a checklist, you're a lot better. Okay, um, Pronovost will. A lot of you who work in ICU. All know or heard of his work looking at stepwise approaches to prevent cath-related bloodstream infections to reduce morbidity and mortality of patients on ICU, and. Essentially, they had really high... The John Hopkins ICU, 16-bedded ICU, had a quite high catheter-related infection rate. It was sort of 16%. And um, they reduced it to zero by implementing a checklist. So when the uh, doctor put in a central line, the nurses stood with a checklist to make sure that they gowned and gloved and masked, etc. Because what we think that we do, we often don't actually do. And where are we now in the UK? Well... Hopefully, in the South we're going to get a bit of money to implement this kind of training and make it more pervasive than just a little bit here and there. Um, certainly that's what we're hoping from the development of the let bees uh, and money coming down from higher education, higher education England. But a scoping strategy that was done in 2010 demonstrated that we haven't really moved on in the last 10 years, despite to her as human, human and, and those sorts of reports. Um, so there does need to be quite a lot more investment in this. The other thing, this was published in Quality and Safety in Healthcare in the last year, Um, we have lagged behind, as I've said previously, in terms of developing safe to safer systems, because there's no point developing the people to be safe if you don't actually have a safe working environment. So the human factors approach in healthcare is about recognising what your common errors are, improving the systems you work in and improving the design and equipment you use, it should become abnormal for us to get new pumps in theatre, new monitors in radiology, you know, new drugs on the ward, etc., without knowing what they are actually about and having understood and know the protocols that are in place. We need to invest more in team training because there is evidence that your performance does improve. It's not surprising. Um, Ian's done some work selecting doctors using simulation and and assessing their non-technical skills and seeing whether anaesthetists fare better if they have good non-technical skills in an interview interview setting. And we need to invest more in non-technical skills training. And the good thing and the knock-on of all these things about human factors is that you end up creating an environment where you can do good evidence-based research and actually improve patient safety in the long term. That's the aim of it. It's not just to get in a simulator and have a bit of fun on one of your study leave days. And the purpose of all of this is basically because you want to produce the best team possible. This is about team performance. That's what human factors is about. Mental models is the concept of, taken from the fact that 85% of errors in healthcare are to do with communication failures. And your mental model is about what you understand of the situation and what you perceive is going to happen in the future, okay? And most of the time, we fight because we have different mental models. And when you're rubbing up against a colleague and you think, they don't understand what I'm talking about, and they're irritating you, just remember that they're probably coming at it from a completely different angle than you, and you just need to try and understand that.